go ahead, if you would, and open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And as you do, several years back, a group of pastors and lay leaders gathered in Central Asia, and they agreed to be interviewed. And the purpose of the interview, they, they did so as an effort to, to help local churches, um, sending agencies, and missionaries in the West um, to develop a, a healthier, more biblical understanding of, of suffering and persecution. And so they, they shared their stories. And they were, as they did, they were extremely transparent about their experiences. Dealing, uh, detailing the, the dealings that they had experienced. Detailing what it was life, life was like as a Christian in this part of the world. And to the interviewer, so to the one asking the questions, it, it seemed like he was hearing Bible stories come to life with each and every story, one after another. It's just like the Bible was jumping off the pages to him, which compelled him to ask an unplanned, and let's just be honest, unprofessional question. Why haven't you written these stories down, he asked. Why haven't you shared these, these lessons and experiences with the church in the West, he wondered out loud. He self-admittedly felt cheated. Why hadn't I not heard these things before in such detail? The interviewer believing that these stories should be turned into books, that these stories should be movies. But his question was met by these pastors and lay leaders with a confused silence. The pastors and lay leaders were, were dumbfounded, to be honest, about the question. Most of them just simply chose to ignore it. But one brother stood up, gently took the interviewer by the arm, and led him across this large room to the other end where there was a significant-sized window in the back. And he said, Sir, when your sons were, were growing up, how many mornings did you take them to the window of your house and say to them, Look, the sun is coming up in the east this morning. The interviewer was frustrated by the question himself, uh, thought the question was silly, it didn't make sense, responding by saying, well, I, I never once did that. Had I done that, my sons would have thought I had lost my mind, because the sun always comes up in the east. And with that, the wise, gentle brother made his point very clearly, saying, sir, that is why we talk little of our persecution and suffering. That is why we have not written our stories down. Our persecution is always with us. It simply comes as we walk with Jesus. It's like the sun coming up in the east. And then he continued, besides, when did you Christians in the West 
stop reading the Bible. Our stories have already been told. God has already told us all that we need about persecution and suffering in the scriptures. The brother making the point in the scripture is clear. The persecution is a normal part of life for those who faithfully follow Christ. It's like the sun coming up in the east. It's not something that we have to seek out, nor should we seek out. It just is. And yet, it should not cripple us in fear or be something that we attempt to flee from at all costs. Because while those who persecute do so in an attempt to silence God's witnesses, the Bible teaches us that, that God uses persecution to strengthen our faith and to broaden the gospel witness. Consider what we're looking at today in Acts chapter 4. A continuation of what we looked at last week in Acts chapter 3. And if you weren't with us last week or, or simply need a, a reminder, it's when Peter and John looked upon the lame beggar. And they called him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They called him to believe in, in Jesus, to trust in Jesus and be healed, both physically and spiritually in this case. And what happened? The man believed, and he was healed, both physically and spiritually. He got up and he walked. The text telling us he actually leaped. He entered into the temple after 40 years of being a cripple. And he got up and he leaped and he entered into the temple and was praising God with great joy. And everyone in the temple did what? They recognized the man, right? They recognized him to be the lame beggar that they had passed coming in and out of the temple at the gate for, for years. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And the crowd then began to swell. And around Peter and, and John, questioning, wondering, what was this that had taken place? How did this happen? The people utterly astounded and, again, wondering, like, how is this possible? Which opened the door for Peter and John to do what? To preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. It gave them more opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And this is where we pick up today in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man, the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So here's the scene. Peter and John are continuing to speak to the people after healing the lame beggar. They're, they're continuing to teach and to proclaim Jesus. And as they do, some of the religious leaders come upon them, and they're greatly annoyed. And why are they greatly annoyed? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so as a result of their teaching and their proclaiming of Jesus, the religious leaders proceed to arrest Peter and John. The next day comes. And they're brought before Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and the high priestly family. Who then do what? They begin to inquire of Peter and John in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? This referring to the, the healing of the lame beggar. How is this possible? By what power or what name did you heal this lame man? Which gives Peter and John the opportunity to do what? To preach Christ. To preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Thus broadening their gospel witness. But it's the question in verse 7 
that Caiaphas and the others asked that brings us to our first point. By what name? By what name? The name we proclaim is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, Peter and John are, are clear in chapter 3 before the people. And they're clear here before the religious leaders. Verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's saying this was not done in our power. This was not done by our strength, but only and exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Don't look at us. Look to Jesus. Verse 11. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This being a very deliberate reference on Peter's part to, to Psalm 118 as well as a reference to a parable that Jesus told during the three years that they walked with him. See, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, in what we refer to as the the triumphal entry, the crowds were quoting part of Psalm 118 as they praised him, saying, Blessed is the King who, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest which the religious leaders even then were telling Jesus to rebuke them for saying. He's like, hush them. Don't say this. To which Jesus responded in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. You can write that down in your notes. You can turn there if you like. But by telling the religious leaders, I tell you, if these were silent, these people crying out, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out which is an astonishing statement, isn't it? An astonishing declaration that is being made. Essentially saying, creation will declare my glory and will give me praise. It will happen. (laughs) But then Jesus goes on in chapter 20 of Luke's gospel to tell a very pointed parable in response. A parable about a man who planted a field. And then he lent that field out to tenants as he went away to another country for a time. And after some time being away, he, he sent a, a servant back to his homeland, back to these tenants, back to his fields, because he's like, oh, bring me back some fruit from the vineyard. So he sends them away, sends the servant there and comes before the tenants. And how do the tenants receive this servant? They rejected him. They sent him away. Go back. Get away from here. He left empty-handed, nothing to take back to the owner. So then, what did the owner do in response? Well, Jesus says he sent another servant. And how did the tenants receive this servant? They beat him. They beat him and treated him shamefully, sending him also away empty-handed. The owner then responding how? By sending his very own son, we're told. Who the tenants received how? By killing him. With the point being, 
if you killed the owner's own son, what should you expect the owner will do to you when he returns? He will return and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. That's the point of Jesus' parable. That's what Jesus is telling them. Jesus, of course, telling this parable in reference to who? The religious leaders and himself. A bold prophetic word regarding his impending death by their hand. And in the process, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus using an Old Testament passage to refer to himself as the one the kingdom of God is built upon and depends upon. Which means Peter's doing what within our text today? He's saying exactly what Jesus said. You, the religious leaders of Israel, you, the builders, you, the tenants, you rejected Jesus by crucifying him. But God the Father has reversed your judgment by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. You're guilty. Your guilty verdict that you leveled against Jesus, God has overturned that verdict. Evidence through the resurrection. And Peter's saying this before the high priest of Calvary. You talk about boldness. That's bold. But here, here's where I picture Peter. With both boldness and compassion. We need them both. <laughs> Boldness and compassion. I picture him leaning into his accusers, like, are you listening? Leaning into them and saying, and there is salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. None. Again, talk about boldness. Want to know by whose name this man was healed? By the only name who can heal. By the only name who can save. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And church, it's this name. The name of Jesus. We must believe and continue to proclaim Yes, people will demand signs and, and seek various words of wisdom and seek out that which will tickle their ears. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Point being, keep speaking the truths of Christ. Keep proclaiming the truths of Christ. Pointing everyone who will listen to the truths of Christ. Preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead because it's the only message that we have and it's the only name by which one may be saved. And as you do, understand Number two, the proclamation of Jesus' name will bring opposition and fruit. And it will do so like the sun rising in the east. 
These aren't things that have to be manufactured. They're just what happened as a result of a faithful gospel proclamation. Let's consider the opposition first. As verse 2 tells us, the religious leaders were what? Greatly annoyed. Why? Because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And it was their annoyance of this teaching in Jesus' name that brought them to do what? Verse 3. Arrest him. Arrest them. And bring them before the high priestly family. And remember, this is the same Annas and the same Caiaphas, same high priestly family that Jesus was brought before and who conspired to have him crucified. These are the tenants. These are the builders who rejected and killed the son. And they're telling Peter and John what? Verse 18. Not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's coming with some earthly authority right there, right? That's coming with some backing that there, a pretty heavy punch that can be leveled. But notice what the religious leaders don't say. They never say don't heal. Never say don't do good deeds. Why? Because they don't really care about humanitarian efforts. They don't care if Peter and John are good citizens. No, they threatened Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of, of Jesus to not preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. With the underlying threat being what? If you continue to do so, we will do to you what we did to Jesus. That's the threat. We will kill you if you don't stop speaking the name of Christ. Why? Because they want the gospel silenced. They want the gospel silenced. So go do your humanitarian efforts. Go fight for social justice all you want. Just don't preach Christ crucified. That's the threat. Quit calling people to repent and to believe in Jesus. And church, that's, this is the purpose of persecution. To silence the faithful witness of the gospel. Overarching purpose of persecution to silence the faithful witness of the gospel. To silence the preaching of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And such persecution may come in the form of a threat. Don't, don't speak about this or else. Maybe a common threat within our own culture. That's not something we speak about here. This is not the, the time or the place. Like this, is, this is not what we speak about. If you do, this is going to happen. And then if that threat doesn't work, which oftentimes it does, it may escalate to the or else, which may be the loss of a job or potentially violence or imprisonment or social isolation or some other form of, of persecution. And if those things still don't silence the witness, what's the final option that's left? Death. If you don't stop telling people about Jesus, we will kill you. This is essentially the life of Paul, isn't it? 
We haven't gotten to Paul yet in Acts, but we're, we're widely familiar with the Apostle Paul. But it's like, quit preaching Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison. Okay, I'll preach Christ in prison. <laughs> Captive audience there for me to have. That's great. Okay, quit preaching Christ in prison or we're going to kill you. <laughs> great, win-win. I get to be with Jesus for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the way Paul saw his life. But church, here's the thing. In places and cultures where the gospel is already virtually silent or relatively silent, where the threat not to speak or the social pressure not to, to speak is enough, you know what isn't needed? Elevated levels of persecution. You don't need elevated levels of persecution when social and cultural pressures are enough to silence the church's gospel, the gospel witness of the church. You definitely don't need elevated levels of persecution when the message or the things the church is focused on are, are something other than preaching Christ crucified. Maybe any number of good things, but the things that are distracting and taking away from the primary message if the message is not itself the main thing. But when we faithfully and lovingly call people to repent and to believe, which is the heart of the gospel, calling people to repentance and to trust in Christ as their only hope in life and in death, repentance being the heart of what it means to follow Christ, to turn away from one's sins and to turn to Christ in faith and to follow him. When we call people to do this, we should expect persecution to follow. Why? Because even with the most gentle and loving of words, we're still telling them not only how you're living your life, but how who you are by your very nature is offensive to God. And if you don't repent, you will receive God's just judgment. Doesn't that sound lovely? It sounds completely opposite of political correctness, right? It sounds completely opposite of, I'm going to make friends at the dinner party. <laughs> now again, we have to be wise in how we do this. We have to have compassion in how we share this. But all this, is that is completely and totally true, that we have to call people to repent. We are sinners by nature deserving of God's wrath. And if we do not turn and faithfully follow Christ, we will receive God's just judgment. This message is the most loving thing that we could ever tell someone. And we don't have to be jerks to do it. <laughs> Too many of those out there. We can do this with compassion. But still, for the person who doesn't believe, regardless of how compassionate we may be, how are they going to receive this message? As a hate-filled rebuke, right? As unloving hate speech. And what are they going to want? They're going to want our message to be silenced. Don't speak about that. Don't talk about that. 
Just ask John the Baptist. He tells King Herod it's wrong for him to be with his brother's wife. Simply lovingly and straightforwardly tells him it is sinful to commit adultery with, your, with his brother's wife. And what happens? Imprisonment and eventually death. Off with his head. All for faithfully calling Herod to repent. And what's interesting about that account in Mark chapter 6 is how Mark, in his gospel, sandwiches the, the sending out of the disciples in between, sandwiches up the sending out of the disciples and the return of the disciples. Right there in between, he includes this account of John the Baptist losing his head. Why? As a way of teaching the church that everyone who faithfully follows Christ should expect nothing less. Persecution is a natural part of a faithful gospel witness. If we faithfully preach Christ, if we faithfully call people to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as their only hope in life and in death, opposition of some sort will follow. It should be expected. Not sought out. Not something we flee from. But it should not surprise us when it comes. Nor should it silence us. Because when it comes, it provides what? Even more opportunity to proclaim Christ. To proclaim Christ in the midst of our suffering. Because when we faithfully proclaim Christ, we can expect what else in addition to persecution? For people to believe. Peter and John preaching Christ. And as they do, they're annoying the mess out of the religious leaders, aren't they? Their, their message, not their actions, is being what's annoying. See, they're, they're not being jerks as they proclaim Christ. But again, the message itself is offensive and thus annoying to unrepentant sinners. So they're arrested. And then verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, what started as 120 there in the upper room grew to over 3,000 at Pentecost. And day by day, more were coming to faith in Christ. We've seen that. And here we're told the number of men came to about 5,000. Was that just 5,000 men? Is that 5,000 total? Don't know. But what's happening as the gospel is preached, as Christ is faithfully being and boldly being proclaimed, church is what? Growing. The church is growing. Lives are being changed. And it's having an effect on the surrounding community. Thus the persecution. And thus the attempt by the religious leaders to stop this growing movement. Verse 17, in order that it, it being this growing movement of believers, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. See, the religious leaders couldn't argue with the evidence, could they? The number of believers were, were growing evidence. The healed man standing beside them. Like he's right there. 
They, they could not say anything in opposition, verse 14. They, they can't deny what is evident to all. This dude, for 40 years, has been sitting there crippled, lame from birth, and now he's standing here healed. But what they can do is what? They can level the threat of silence, which packed again a pretty good punch. Thus the need for what? Boldness. And point number three, the bold proclamation of Jesus' name is essential and worth the cost. So now let's ask, on what grounds is it essential for the church to preach Christ? Beyond saying, you're a church, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay, yeah, but why? Why is this message so essential? Well, we've already seen from Peter's words in verse 12, as there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. None. It's Jesus' words from John chapter 14, verse 6, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, this is the exclusivity of the gospel that pushes against the very fabric and nature of the pluralistic society in which we live. A world that in the name of love believes and preaches that there are multiple paths to God. Multiple ways to live rightly in this world. But it's the exclusivity and the truth of the gospel that provides the thrust behind Jesus' commissioning his church to do what? To go out and make disciples of all nations. Not to make people like good people, but to call them to repent and to believe and to follow Christ faithfully. As faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How can they believe if they've never heard? They can't. And thus they, they can't call on the Lord in faith to be saved if they have not heard. That's the necessity of gospel proclamation, both locally and globally. For there is salvation, again, in no one else. There's no other name given among, under heaven among men by which we must be saved. None. Which is why, regardless of social pressures, regardless of what persecutions may come, we must preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. For how can people believe and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved if they've never heard? Can't. See, when Peter and John were charged not to speak by the high priestly family, the threat of death was clearly before them. They'd already killed Jesus. They'd gladly kill them as well. Only thing holding the religious leaders back now is the favor of the crowd towards the miracle that they witnessed. The religious leaders are like, okay, the people are, are in favor of all this. We're going to let this simmer down a little bit. But the threat is still there. And how do Peter and John respond? Verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter and John are like, you can judge us how you see fit, but we will not shut up about the gospel. 
we are compelled to preach Christ crucified. We are not ashamed of the gospel, knowing it is the power of God as salvation for everyone who believes. And thus the question, are we compelled to preach Christ crucified no matter the cost? Is the, the love of Christ, the, the captivating power of, of Christ so overwhelming in us that we can't help but proclaim this truth? Do we see the essentiality, the necessity of the gospel? For those who never hear cannot respond in faith to the gospel? But then, of course, the question, where in the world does such boldness come from? I don't know, I'm not feeling that bold. (laughs) Number four, the boldness of our proclamation is rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, there was first the boldness of, of Peter and John to speak to the people. That led to their arrest and being brought before the high priest, which, let's be honest, provided every reason for timidity and every reason for silence to exist. But when questioned, Peter responded boldly. And the question is how? How can someone respond with such boldness in the midst of such glaring opposition? Is it some kind of martyrdom complex? Like, (laughs) just bring it on, I'll take it. Is that that what he has? Now, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. The emphasis here being that Peter did not do this in his own power, but rather the power of the Holy Spirit who he received at Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit every believer receives in full at the moment of conversion. And then what's he proceed to do? to boldly proclaim Christ in the power of the Spirit. And when the religious leaders, verse 13, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Meaning... The religious leaders knew the boldness of Peter and John wasn't the result of some advanced education or some advanced training that they had received. These were common men. Like us, in so many ways, but even with less education. But common men who did what? Clearly been with Jesus. But remember, they had been with Jesus for three years prior, had they not? And during the course of the three years they walked with Jesus, they showed their fair share of timidity and naivety, did they not? Peter himself, not even two months prior, like less than two months, had done what? Denied Jesus three different times. I don't know him. (laughs) I I don't know. He showed no boldness then, did he? But see, now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between then and now. Now they've not only been with Jesus for those three years, 
They'd now been with the resurrected Jesus. They had received the Spirit. And as a result, they were compelled to boldly proclaim Christ. And here's the thing, church. If we are in Christ, that means we believe in the crucified and resurrected Christ. The same Jesus who Peter believed in. And we too have received the Spirit. The same Spirit that Peter received. So then the question is, how can we be bold like Peter and John? And like brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Because maybe you're like, I'm not really feeling that bold, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm not feeling that level of boldness. And if you're feeling that way, that, you're not alone. I'm asking that question here. <laughs> How can I be that kind of bold? One, not going to be on the screen, I don't think. One, remember, if you are in Christ... You have been given the same spirit. Don't forget that. You have been given the same spirit. Two, spend time with Jesus in his word. The more time you spend with Jesus in his word, the greater boldness you will have. Don't spend time with Jesus in his word. You can pretty much count on not having boldness. You can pretty much count on adapting into social groups and areas that maybe allow you to speak on certain topical or cultural issues, but you're not going to have the boldness to preach Christ. We want to spend time with Jesus in his word. And then three, pray for the Spirit to give you ever-increasing boldness. And keep praying for the Spirit to give you ever-increasing boldness. And four, step out in faith. Faithful obedience and boldly proclaim Christ. Our boldness giving forth to greater and greater boldness and a broader and broader gospel witness. Yes, more opposition, but also more fruit. Remember that you have the Spirit. Spend time intentionally with Jesus in his word. Pray for the Spirit to give you boldness. And go be bold. And proclaim the name of Christ to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray for such boldness. And just an overwhelming understanding of the grace that you have lavished upon us, such amazing grace that our sinful chains are gone. <laughs> we have been set free. We are free to give you praise and desire to give you praise as a result, as your children. But Lord, I pray that we will be a people who will go forth in faithful obedience, telling others this good news. Understanding and recognizing that the gospel came to us on its way to someone else. Oh Lord, may we not be a cul-de-sac where the gospel message stops, but Lord, may we be a, a highway where it may continue on to the nations. Lord, may we be faithful to proclaim the gospel regardless of the persecution. Oh Lord, be with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing oh far greater persecution than we have ever known in these moments. 
Lord, continue to give them a boldness to proclaim Christ, to continue to persevere in the faith, to fight the good fight. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of the opposition, you will continue to bring forth great fruit. And Lord, that more and more will day by day come to saving faith in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.